We're reading Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 to 23. You can find that in the Pew Bible on page 1016 or in your booklet on page 26. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith and working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. There are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with us, with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. With their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value of restraining sensual indulgence. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Dana. Good evening, church. My name is Paul, and I haven't met you. It's a joy to be here tonight. Uh, Please keep your Bibles open at Colossians 2. It's an incredible passage. It's complex, uh, but I I want to encourage you that if we work hardest tonight, you will be blessed and your faith will be enriched. So I'm going to pray for us as we sit under his word. Father, we want to thank you that you love us, and you love us enough to keep on feeding us and nourishing us through your word. Father, you promise that your word will not return empty, and so we claim that promise tonight and ask that by your spirit that you would open our eyes to see glorious truths, that you open our minds, stretch our minds, fill our minds with glorious truths about Christ, and send us from this place loving Christ more. We ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. I want to start tonight with a a confession. 
Here's my confession. I've got a man crush. I've got a huge man crush. His name is Charles. His second name is Haddon and his last name is Spurgeon. Uh, this guy is incredible. Uh, and this week my crush became even bigger because I came across a sentence that Spurgeon wrote that basically summarizes this sermon in one sentence. Here it is. Spurgeon says, you will never know the fullness of Christ unless you know the emptiness of everything else but Christ. That's it tonight. That is Colossians 2. You have everything you need in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ is all that you need for salvation and all you need for sanctification. Christ is everything you need for life and everything you need for godliness. Christ is everything you need to live in this world and Christ is everything you need for the world to come. You've got everything in Christ. He's all that you need. But God is saying to you tonight and to me tonight, please, please, please don't be deceived by the empty things of this world. Please don't be seduced away from Christ by legalism or rituals or religions or experience. It is so tragic when people who have got Christ think they need more. It is tragic when people who have got Christ and they are seduced by religious rules and they think they are super spiritual, but they've moved away from Christ. It is tragic when you sit here and you think you need anything more than Jesus Christ. We don't need anything more than Jesus, we need more of Jesus. We need a a deeper, higher, wider knowledge of who Christ is, how glorious he is, how magnificent he is, and exactly what he's given us if we're a Christian here tonight. It's a bit like a baby. When a baby is born, a baby is born absolutely complete. We're not like tadpoles suddenly growing an extra leg, age two, or an extra arm, age five. You've got everything you need Now, as a baby, you need to grow into your body and learn how to use your body, but you are complete from birth. Same as a Christian, spiritually, when you are born again, you've got everything you need in Christ. Now, you may not understand it all or use it all until you grow in him, but you have it all. He's all that you need. And so I've got two really simple points, fullness and emptiness. Verse 10 is an extraordinary verse. I hope you never fade of the glory of this verse. It's incredible. In Christ, in the person of Jesus Christ, you, if you're a Christian, have been brought to fullness or completeness. And that is because of verse 9. Because in Christ, all the fullness of the deity, all the fullness of God dwells or lives in bodily form. He's saying the entire fullness of the Godhead dwells in the person of Jesus Christ. He's saying Jesus is fully God. Jesus wasn't just God-like. Jesus wasn't just overflowing with God-like qualities or characteristics of God. He is fully God. All the fullness of God dwells in the person of Jesus. That is extraordinary. The God who dwelt at Mount Sinai, the God who dwelt in the tabernacle, the God who dwelt in the temple, now dwells in bodily form, and his name is Jesus. Now, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. But look at that word all in verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of God dwells. 
He's saying there's no more of God's deity to be found anywhere else but Christ. It's not mostly in Jesus, but a bit in Buddha. It's not mostly in Jesus, but a bit in Muhammad. It's not mostly in Jesus, but a bit in the church. It's all in Jesus. There's no extra revelation of God to be found anywhere but Christ. Now, that is mind-blowing. In the person of Christ, he is fully God. But verse 10, I think, is even more mind-blowing. And in Christ, you and I have been brought to fullness or completeness. If we're in Christ, we are full of Christ's fullness. And I know this is really complex, so this is the best analogy I can come up with. Well, actually, I pitched it for somebody else, but it's, it's a good one. Imagine you're standing at the shore of an ocean. And the ocean is vast. The ocean is almost like infinite, and you are finite. You're like a dot on the shore. And if you've got a bottle in your hand or a container in your hand and you, you put the bottle into the ocean, then the bottle is in the ocean. As soon as you put the bottle in the ocean, the bottle is full of the ocean, yeah? The bottle is full of the ocean. Now, it doesn't contain the whole ocean because the ocean is infinite. And what you actually need is a bigger and bigger and bigger bottle to get more and more of the more of the ocean in it. And that's what Paul is saying here. If you're in Christ, it's almost like you're, you are that bottle in the ocean. You're in the ocean. You're in Christ. And because you're in Christ, you are full of Christ. But there's always more, more of Christ that you could know. It's almost like we need a bigger and bigger, bigger bottle to know more and more and more about how glorious Christ is. And so you don't need a new revelation or new experience. You just need more of Christ. Because we're told in verse 3 that in Christ you have all the treasures of wisdom and all the treasures of knowledge. You've got everything you need for life and godliness in the person of Christ. Now to help you understand what it means to be full, Paul gives us four words, and you've got to believe this. In Christ you are fully free. In Christ you have full life. In Christ you are fully forgiven. And in Christ you have full victory. Do you believe that? Freedom in Christ. Life in Christ. Forgiveness in Christ. Victory in Christ. He starts off with the word freedom. In Christ you are fully free from the power of your sin. You don't have to serve sin anymore if you're in Christ. You're no longer a slave to sin. That is verses 11 and 12. Again, they are complicated verses, but they are simple and profound. Look at verse 11, in Christ you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. So he's not talking about literal, physical circumcision. He's talking about the spiritual circumcision, the circumcision of your heart. In Christ, verse 11, your whole self, ruled by the flesh, that's your, your sinful nature, your old self was, was put off or cut off literally when you were circumcised by Christ. He cut off that part of you. He cut off your sinful nature. So you're no longer controlled by the flesh, but you've got the Spirit of God living you. You're no longer slaves to sin because you can live by the Spirit. Your old self has died. Because of verse 12, you participated in Christ's death and resurrection. Verse 12, you were buried with Christ in baptism. So as you went under the water, a sign of dying with Christ, I'm dead to my old self. But then you raised again, you were raised to life. 
Just as Christ was raised to the dead, a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. And the same power that raised Christ from the dead works in you, his name is the Holy Spirit. So if you're in Christ and you're full of Christ, you are free from the power of sin. Sin has no hold over you. But you say, but Paul, I still sin. Of course you do, so do I. I battle with it every hour of every day. But I've got a choice to make. Because I'm in Christ, I can live by the flesh or live by the spirit. And the best way you can fight sin in your life is not by being religious or not by lists of rules, not some mountaintop experience. It's by drinking more and more from the ocean that's called Christ. The power of Christ in you will enable you and equip you to say no to ungodliness and to live this spirit-filled godly life. This is so liberating. If you are full of Christ, you are not defeated, you are not discouraged, and you're not a prisoner to your sin. The second word is life. You have life in Christ. You're fully alive. Verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, when you were dead to sin, look at that word in verse 13. He doesn't say that you were distant from God and needed bringing near. He doesn't say you were alienated from God and you needed to be reconciled. He said you were dead. There was no life in you. You were dead people walking. You were spiritually dead. You were cut off from your creator because of your sin. You ever been to a a funeral where there's an open coffin? You ever seen a dead person? If you're ever at a funeral open coffin, please do not do this. Please don't go up to the open coffin and say, come on, wake up, try harder, pull your socks up. Please don't try mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. It doesn't work. They are dead and they need a miracle of new life. And you and I need to grasp this, that without Christ, we were dead. There's no point in saying, try harder, be religious, come to church, pull your socks up. Dead people need a miracle of new life breathed into them. That's what Christ has done for us. Remember Elijah when he met the widow's son who was dead in 1 Kings 17, a beautiful visual aid of Elijah lying his whole body over that boy to breathe new life into him. It's like Christ has laid his whole body over our sinful body so that he breathes new life into us. And it says in verse 13, God made you alive with Christ. You didn't choose that. He gave it to you as a gift. So if you're here tonight in Christ, you are fully alive. You're spiritually alive. You can talk to your creator. And your language changes. You're not dead. You're alive. You're not blind. You can see. You're not empty. You're full of life. Life as it's truly meant to be. But it gets better. I am free from the power of sin. I'm fully alive in Christ and I am fully forgiven from the penalty of my sins. Do you spot that in verse verse 13? Those last few words. He forgave us. So God forgave us. Look at the next word. God forgave us all our sins. Isn't that amazing? There's not one single sin I've done, past, present and future, that has not been paid for at Calvary. It's all been paid for. Fully forgiven. Now, please never tire of hearing this. What happened to the cross, verse 14? 
God cancelled the charge of legal indebtedness, all the, the list of wrongs they'd done, all the laws they had broken, all the good things they had failed to do. It's a list before God, and it stands against them. It condemns us. About 10.30 last night, I decided to write my own certificate of debt. All the wrong things I'd done just yesterday. I wouldn't normally do this, but I want to share it with you. Selfish. Exaggeration, greed, grumbling, lust, lies, pride, frustration, anger, short-tempered, impatient, self-controlled, lack of self-controlled, embellishment, not loving people well, not praying for my enemies, harboring hurts, not praying at all, not delighting in God, not being thankful, not confessing my sin, not caring for other people well, not fighting my sin, not forgiving people. That was just yesterday. Now here's a secret. I'm not going to frame this and hang it up as like a, a symbol of pride. Look at me, wow. This is a symbol of disgrace and fear. I don't want to stand before God and have all this list read out before me, do you? What I need is somebody to, to wipe this clean, to wash this clean, to tear it up. I need someone to do this and say, that has been paid for at Calvary. It's been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Now, do you believe that? That your record of wrongs that stood against you was paid for once and for all at Calvary? Look at verse 14. It was nailed to the cross. Christ took it on your behalf. Christ wiped your hard drive. He pressed the factory reset. He's done it all for you. And can I say, there's nothing more miserable as the miserable Christian who lives with guilt. The miserable Christian who spends their whole life weighed down by this guilt of the sin that they think has not been paid for at Calvary. And there's nothing more miserable than the Christian, the so-called Christian, who thinks they have to earn forgiveness or work for forgiveness because Christ has done it all for you. Martin Luther had a dream once. And in his dream, he was visited by Satan, by the tempter, and the tempter produced this list, scroll after scroll after scroll, of all the things that Luther had done wrong, and it was written in Luther's own hand. And suddenly Luther turned to the tempter and said this, that is true. Every word on that list is true, I've done it all. But cross that all out. And right across it all, the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed me from every one of those sins. Now, do you believe this, that you are fully forgiven? Not one single sin that you've ever done has not been paid for at Calvary. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full, full forgiveness can it be? Hallelujah, what a saviour. Here's the fourth word for fullness, victory. You have full victory at Calvary. Full victory over Satan. It's that, that great hymn, Before the Throne of God Above. He's got that line, uh, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see Christ there who paid the end to all my sin. And I know Satan is good at tempting me. Satan whispers in my ear, Oh, come on, Paul, look at you, Paul. You call yourself a Christian? But if I'm in Christ, Satan has no power over me. I say, get behind me, Satan. 
I'm not fighting for the victory, I'm fighting because of the victory. Satan was defeated at the cross. At the cross, the victim was actually the victor, to quote Augustine. Christ was not the victim, he was the victor. Because at the cross of Christ, we have victory over Satan and victory over evil and victory over hatred and victory over oppression and violence and that great enemy we call death. See what's happening in verse 15? There are three things happening. He's talking about these spiritual powers and spiritual authorities. He's talking about Satan. He says, having disarmed Satan, like an army where, you, where all their weapons have been removed, they've been stripped of their power. That's what's happening at Calvary. The, Satan, the weapons of Satan have been stripped away. His lies, his empty promises, his empty threats, his deception, his discouragement, all been taken away from him. Not just his arm, verse 15, but discredited. He's been made a public spectacle of. That's the image of, of an army with, without their weapons, but more than that, without their clothes. They are now naked. They're like a laughingstock. They're a joke. And then that great word, triumph, verse 15. Satan's been defeated once and for all. The battle's been won. I shared before that when my kids win at a game, especially against their brothers, if they win a game... They do this really annoying thing. They do little L sign over their head. They'll dance. They go, loser, loser, loser. But we can do that to Satan. We can look at Satan as he whispers to us, you are not fully forgiven. You say, no, I am fully forgiven in Christ. Loser, loser, get behind me, loser. And when Satan whispers to you, you'll never break that habit or you'll never break that addiction or you're a nobody, You say, I am not a nobody, I'm a child of God. So get behind me, Satan. Satan's still prowling around like a roaring lion, but he has no power over us. I like this story of the little girl who said, whenever the devil knocked at the door, she always sent Jesus to answer it. And you've got to believe that, that you've got to fill your mind with the voice of Christ, not the lies of the devil. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Flee from the evil one, and he will flee from you. Now, if these four things are true, which I believe they are, if you are in Christ and you're full in Christ, you are fully free from the power of sin. You have full life in Christ. You are fully forgiven from the penalty of sin, and you're fully victorious over Satan and the evil one. If these are all true, my question for you is this. Why, why, why? would you look for anything other than Christ? Why would you run to the empty things of this world other than Christ? As Spurgeon said, you will never know the fullness of Christ unless you know the emptiness of everything else but Christ. But that's the context of these verses. Paul is writing to Christians like you and like me who are surrounded by things that are empty but can seduce us away from Christ. These verses are written in the context of a warning sign, a warning trumpet, the red tape, the flashing lights saying, warning, be careful. Be careful that these things, these other things, which look so enticing, don't strip you of your relationship with Christ. There are four warnings about emptiness. The first is in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive or kidnaps you through hollow and deceptive philosophy. I've called that intellectualism. Beware of that. Verse 16. Let, do not let anyone judge you 
by what you eat or what you drink. I've called that legalism. Verse 18, don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Don't let anyone drag you away from Christ. I've called that mysticism. And verse 20, since you died with Christ to these spiritual forces, why? Why submit to rules? And I've called that asceticism. These are the four things that are tempting for us to, to trust in and rely on, but they, they, they entice us away from Christ. The first is intellectualism, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive, no one kidnaps you, no one robs you of your joy in Christ. Please don't go back into slavery through hollow, empty, and through deceptive. It's, it has just enough truth to sound plausible, but it is deceptive. It's deceptive philosophy. That's the danger. It's so plausible, so persuasive, but so dangerous. Let me be very clear here. Paul is not anti-intellectual. Paul doesn't say switch off your brain and turn to Christ. Philosophy is a great discipline. It just means the love of wisdom. It's good to be philosophical. It's good to grapple with the reason for existence. Who are we? Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we heading? He's not saying don't debate. He's not saying don't engage in discussions. He's not saying don't read blogs. The problem is when our philosophy is seeking answers without Christ. The issue is when we engage in these deep intellectual and mystical and mysterious pontifications, but there's no Christ. And I've seen that happen time and time and time again. The Christian who gets so obsessed with intellectual discussions and theological gymnastics, and they shift away from Christ. And one of the most patronising phrases I hear time and time again is something like this. Oh, Paul, I used to believe in your Christ, that simple Christ, but I've moved on from that. I now call myself a progressive evangelical, a post-evangelical, as if you can move on anywhere but Christ. You never outgo Christ because you find all the treasures of wisdom in him. But I don't think that's our big danger. I think our big danger is the second one. It's called legalism. It's called religion. It's called religious rituals. And it's so easy to find your identity in being religious and not in Christ. Paul says in verse 16, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or what you drink or with regard to religious festivals or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality is found in Christ. Now Paul is talking here about diet and days. So God gave his people food laws in Leviticus to, to distinguish them as God's people and he gave them these, these days, these celebrations set aside so they could worship God. And they're both good things. Nothing wrong with good diet or good days. The problem is that when these helpful things become essential things. The problem is when, when, when these things which are given by God to help us we start to find our identity and our security and our salvation in doing these things. He's saying, don't let other people unsettle you or judge you or push you around. Don't think, I must do this or I have to do this, or, I can't do this. That is rules, it's not Christ. And what he says in verse 17 is beautiful. He says, these things are a shadow. They were a pointer. They were pointing you towards a thing to come that was Christ. Don't live in the shadowlands. Live in Christ. 
It's like if you order an Uber and the Uber car comes around the corner and you see the shadow of the car come around the corner. I hope you don't step into the shadow. I hope you actually get into the car. And once you're in the car, you don't bother about the shadow. If you're in Christ, all these religious rules, don't be obsessed with them. I hope one, no, no one ever says to you things like, well, I'm surprised that he hasn't been confirmed. What, you don't take communion at church every week? Oh, you didn't have your quiet time on Tuesday. They're just helpful things, but they don't save us. And I hope you know that legalism, religious legalism is so attractive because we feel really good when we quantify our spirituality. Don't we? we thrive on doing religious stuff because it makes us feel good. But the downside is this, legalism always, always, always brings judgmentalism. Show me a person caught up with religion and I will show you a judgmental, joyless, surface faith Christian. You walk into church and you feel judged about what you do or what you wear. And the truly religious person who looks down on other people because they haven't kept their rules. But it's miserable being a legalist. It's miserable being a legalist. There's no joy in that. It robs you of your joy in Christ. Notice in verse 16 that Paul does not say, let no one keep special days or keep special diets. We've got great liberty here. If you want to keep them, keep them. You're free to do that. But what you're not free to do is judge somebody else by what they choose to do or not do. Because we're full of Christ, our freedom's in Christ. We're saved by Christ, not by these rituals. The third warning is also alive and kicking in our church. And I've called it mysticism. Verse 18, don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. That word there is an athlete who doesn't finish the race, is pulled out of the race. It's like the, the swimming drug cheat. He's disqualified from competing. Please don't let anyone disqualify you from finishing your Christian race. What's the problem here? It's people who have these mystical experiences, the visions and the dreams and the spiritual experiences. You ever met those people? And they're banging on about how they feel and being empowered by this experience on some mountaintop vision of the Lord and the Spirit of God telling them this and telling them that. Now, please don't mishear me. I'm not saying these things don't happen and can't happen and shouldn't happen. I do believe in the Spirit of God and I do believe in visions and dreams and miracles and deep spiritual experiences. I'm not knocking that. In fact, many of us need to be more open to it. But mysticism is when you... You clang for that, that, that vision or that experience, but there's no Christ. Mysticism is when the vision becomes the benchmark of your faith. And because other people haven't had the same experience, they feel a failure or they feel a second-rate Christian. And you start to crave more and more and more experiences and less and less Christ. Because according to verse 18... These people delight in false humility. They act all humbly, but it's all about them, really. And according to verse 18, they go into great detail. They're puffed up with what they've seen. You ever met these people? They bang on and on and on about this amazing mountaintop moment with God that's transformed them. And you're hearing them thinking, well, I want that. I need that. No, you don't. You need Christ. 
And the tragedy in verse 19 that these people are said to have lost their connection with their head is all about the experience, it's not about Christ. Listen to this extract. I met God aged eight. I had a most remarkable experience of God. I was led out of the clutches of Jewish rabbis by angelic beings. I was caught up to the heaven for a personal direct encounter with my God. He said to me, you're my son and my son lives in you and you'll be my personal personification on earth. So here I am with a message for you, a vision for you. Do you want it? Do you really want it? You're not looking at Morris Cirillo, you're looking in the face of Jesus Christ and I say to you, pick up your mat and walk. And sadly, millions of people around the world are duped by this kind of mysticism. It's Christless. Do you know that mysticism is how Mormonism started? With Joseph Smith having an angelic vision. And mysticism is how the Quran was written with a Muhammad having an angelic experience. It's how most cults and crazy Christian meetings happen I've seen too many people led astray, longing for some deeper experience and losing Christ. I love the fable of the dog who's holding a bone in his mouth. And he comes to a pond. He looks in the pond. He sees another dog with another bone in his mouth. But the dog in the pond, the bone looks so much nicer, so much bigger. He thinks, I want that bone. And so the dog holding his bone opens his mouth to grab this supposed better bone, and of course he drops the bone he's already holding to the bottom of the lake. I've seen many Christians drop Christ, longing for this deep, mystical moment. The fourth danger I called asceticism, and I can't spell it and I can't say it. It just means, it just means rules, it just means man-made rules. See that in verse 20? Since you died with Christ, you've died with him to all this guff of the world. So as as, as though you still belong to the world, why do you submit to its rules like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? These rules are not just religious rules, they're just life rules. And we've all heard them. How many of you sat in church and you've heard sermons saying things like this? If you're a Christian, you can't eat that and you can't go there and don't wear this and don't drink that. If you're a Christian, you can't date that person. You can't live in that suburb. You can't spend your money that way. And let me tell you how to micromanage your life with all these rules. You ever heard that? And again, it's a fine line because we want to help people to live for Jesus, but we don't give them rules to find their identity in their rules. Rules are always supposed to help us to love Jesus more. Take drinking alcohol. There's lots of good reasons why you may choose not to drink alcohol. You might not like, like the taste. It might be a weakness for you. You might be aware of the dangers for other people. But please, please watch out that you don't make it a rule. The only do not in the Bible is do not get drunk. And many of these so-called rules started out with great intentions. But here's the problem. Christians love rules. Evangelical Christians thrive on rules. We've grown up with rules. We parent through rules. We reward our kids by keeping the rules. The rules make us look good and we look super spiritual because, hey, tick the box this week. I've kept all my rules. And I think asceticism is one of the most tolerated sin in our church. All these rules, man-made rules, and they never work. 
I hope you know that rules never work to change your heart. It's death by rules. That's what verse 23 says. Such regulations, such rules have the appearance of wisdom. They seem so wise, but they've got their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack, they are useless in restraining sensual indulgence. Let me give an example. As a pastor, I often meet with men who are struggling with pornography. And I meet with these men who are battling with pornography. They're Christians. They're trying to battle that sin of pornography. And they produce this list. The list of things they're doing, things they're not doing. The filter they've got on their computers, their accountability parties. They're all great things, all great things to help the fight, but they never work. The only thing that works is a deeper, richer, more intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. More drinking from the ocean that's called Christ. The more you love him, the more you want to live for him. The more you're concerned for his glory and his majesty and his power, the more you want to change your behavior. Rules are great at surface management change, but they do not change your heart. So here's my question. If we know that intellectualism and legalism and mysticism and assessment, if we know that all these things are useless compared to Christ, why are they so seductive? Why do you so easily fall into the trap of all these things? And I think the only answer is this. We just don't spend enough time drinking in the ocean called Christ. We don't long for that bigger bottle. We don't long for that bigger container. We don't long for more and more and more of Christ. We don't want our minds to be stretched with how glorious and how majestic he is. Because the more you love him, the more you find your security in him and your identity in him, all these things of this world will grow strangely dim. So please, you will never know the fullness of Christ until you realize that everything else but Christ is truly empty. Let me pray. Our Father, we are amazed that in your great wisdom you put all your fullness in the person of Christ. And in him, we have that fullness. We are complete in him. Thank you, Father, for your freedom we have over the power of sin. Thank you, Father, for the forgiveness that we have over the penalty of sin. Thank you, Father, for the the life that we have in Christ and the victory that we have in Christ. And I ask, Lord, that you'd help each one of us to turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his beautiful face so all these other things of this world will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace.